0: Chapter 7 of David Elginbrod by George MacDonald This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit www.libriVox.org. David Elginbrod by George MacDonald Chapter 7 The Secret of the Wood the unthrift sun shot vital gold, a thousand pieces, And heaven its azure did unfold, checkered with snowy fleeces. The air was all in spice, and every bush a garland wore, Thus fed my eyes, but all the ear lay hush. Henry Vaughan. It was not in mathematics alone that Hugh Sutherland was serviceable to Margaret Elginbrod. That branch of study had been chosen for her father, not for her, but her desire to learn had led her to lay hold upon any mental provision with which the table happened to be spread, and the more eagerly that her father was a guest at the same feast. Before long Hugh bethought him that it might possibly be of service to her, in the course of her reading, if he taught her English a little more thoroughly than she had probably picked it up at the parish school to which she had been in the habit of going till within a very short period of her acquaintance with the tutor. The English reader must not suppose the term parish school to mean what the same term would mean if used in England. Boys and girls of very different ranks go to the Scotch parish schools, and the fees are so small as to place their education within the reach of almost the humblest means. To his proposal to this effect Margaret responded thankfully, and it gave Hugh an opportunity of directing her attention to many of the more delicate distinctions in literature, for the appreciation of which she manifested at once a remarkable aptitude. Coleridge's poems had been read long ago, some of them indeed almost committed to memory in the process of repeated perusal. No doubt a good many of them must have been as yet too abstruse for her, not in the least, however, from inaptitude in her for such subjects as they treated of, but simply because neither the terms nor the modes of thought could possibly have been as yet presented to her in so many different positions as to enable her to comprehend their scope. Hugh lent her Sir Walter's poems next, but those she read at an eye-glance. She returned the volume in a week, saying merely they were Veraboni's stories. He saw at once that, to have done them justice with the girl, he ought to have lent them first— but that could not be helped now, and what should come next. Upon this he took thought. His library was too small to cause much perplexity of choice, but for a few days he continued undecided. Meantime the interest he felt in his girl pupil deepened greatly. She became a kind of study to him. The expression of her countenance was far inferior to her intelligence and power of thought. It was still to excess, almost dull, in ordinary not from any fault in the mould of the features, except, perhaps, in the upper lip, which seemed deficient in drawing, if I may be allowed the expression, but from the absence of that light which indicates the presence of active thought and feeling within. In this respect her face was like the earthen pitcher of Gideon. It concealed the light. She seemed to have, to a peculiar degree, the faculty of retiring inside, But now and then, while he was talking to her, and doubtful from the lack of expression, whether she was even listening with attention to what he was saying, her face would lighten up with the radiant smile of intelligence, not, however, throwing the light upon him, and in a moment reverting to its former condition of still twilight. Her person seemed not to be as yet thoroughly possessed or informed by her spirit. It sat apart within her, and there was no ready transit from her heart to her face, This lack of presence in the face is quite common in pretty schoolgirls and rustic beauties, but it was manifest to an unusual degree in the case of Margaret. Yet most of the forms and lines in her face were lovely, and when the light did shine through them for a passing moment, her countenance seemed absolutely beautiful. Hence it grew into an almost haunting temptation with you to try to produce this expression, to unveil the coy light of the beautiful soul. Often he tried— often he failed and sometimes he succeeded had they been alone it might have become dangerous i mean for hugh i cannot tell for margaret when they first met she had just completed her seventeenth year but at an age when a town-bred girl is all but a woman her manners were those of a child this childishness however soon began to disappear and the peculiar stillness of her face of which i have already said so much made her seem older than she was. It was now early summer, and all the other trees in the wood, of which there were not many besides the firs of various kinds, had put on their fresh leaves, heaped up in green clouds between the wanderer and the heavens. In the morning the sun shone so clear upon these that, to the eyes of one standing beneath, the light seemed to dissolve them away to the most ethereal forms of glorified foliage. They were to be claimed for earth only by the shadows that the one cast upon the other, visible from below through the transparent leaf. This effect is very lovely in the young season of the year, when the leaves are more delicate and less crowded, and especially in the early morning when the light is most clear and penetrating. By the way, I do not think any man is compelled to bid good-bye to his childhood. Every man may feel young in the morning, middle-aged in the afternoon, and old at night. A day corresponds to a life, and the portions of the one are pictures and little of the seasons of the other. Thus far man may rule even time, and gather up in a perfect being youth and age at once. One morning, about six o'clock, Hugh, who had never been so early in the woods since the day he met Margaret there, was standing under a beech-tree looking up through its multitudinous leaves illuminated, as I have attempted to describe, with the sidelong rays of the brilliant sun. He was feeling young and observing the forms of nature, with a keen, discriminating gaze. That was all. Fond of writing verses, he was studying nature, not as a true lover, but as one who would hereafter turn his discoveries to use. For it must be confessed that nature affected him chiefly through the medium of poetry, and that he was far more ambitious of writing beautiful things about nature than of discovering and understanding for their own sakes, any of her hidden yet patent meanings. Changing his attitude after a few moments, he decried, under another beech-tree not far from him, Margaret, standing and looking up fixedly as he had been doing a moment before. He approached her, and she, hearing his advance, looked and saw him, but did not move. He thought he saw the glimmer of tears in her eyes. She was the first to speak, however. What were you seeing up there, Mr. Sutherland? I was only looking at the bright leaves and the shadows upon them. Ah, I thought maybe ye had seen something. What do you mean, Margaret? I did not rightly ken myself, but I, I expect to see something in this fir-wood. I'm here maist mornings in the day dawns, but I'm later the day. We were later than usual at our work last night. What kind of thing do you expect to see? That's just what I did not ken. I cannot mind when I began to come here first, looking for something. I've tried money a time, but I cannot mind. Do what I like. Margaret had never said so much about herself before. I can account for it only on the supposition that Hugh had gradually assumed in her mind a kind of pastoral superiority, which, at a favorable moment, inclined her to impart her thoughts to him but he did not know what to say to this strange fact in her history. She went on to say, however, as if, having broken the ice, she must sweep it away as well. The only thing that helps me to account for it is a picture in our old Bible of the angel sittin' underneath the tree and handin' up his hand, as gin he worse speaking to a woman at standin' before him. Ilka time and I come across that picture, I feel directly as given I were my lane in the firwood here, so I suppose that when I was a wee bairn, I mount have come out some morning my lone with the expectation of seeing an angel here, waitin' for me to speak to me like the on in the Bible. But never an angel have I seen. Yet I have an expectation like of seeing something. I cannot what, for the whole place I seems full of the presence, and in a haunter more to man or the kirk in the sermon forby and for the singing the sound in the fir-taps is far more solemn and sweet, at the same time and muckle more like praising of God than of the psalms together. But I think, at given I could hear Milton playing on his organ, it would be more like that sound of many waters than anything else I can think of. Hugh stood and gazed at her in astonishment. To his more refined ear there was a strange incongruity between the somewhat coarse dialect in which she spoke, and the things she uttered in it. Not that he was capable of entering into her feelings, much less of explaining them to her. He felt that there was something remarkable in them, but attributed both the thoughts themselves and their influence on him to an uncommon and weird imagination. As of such origin, however, he was just the one to value them highly. Those are very strange ideas, he said. But what can there be about the wood? The very primroses ye brought me the first this spring yourself, Mr. Sutherland, come out at the fit of the trees, and look at me as if they said, We can, we can all about it, but never a word more they say. There's something by ordinary in it. Do you like no other place besides, said Hugh, for the sake of saying something. Oh, I'm on, on. but none like this. What kind of place do you like best? I like places with green grass and flowers amont. You like flowers, then? Like them, whiles they gar me greet, and whiles they gar me laugh. But there's more in them than that, and in the wood, too. I cannot rightly say my prayers in only other place. The Scotch dialect, especially the one brought up in Highlands, was a considerable antidote to the effect of the beauty of what Margaret said. Suddenly it struck Hugh that if Margaret were such an admirer of nature, possibly she might enjoy Wordsworth. He himself was as yet incapable of doing him anything like justice, and with the arrogance of youth did not hesitate to smile at the excursion, picking out an awkward line here and there as a special food for laughter even. But many of his smaller pieces he enjoyed very heartily, although not thoroughly, the element of Christian pantheism, which is their soul being beyond his comprehension, almost perception as yet. So he made up his mind after a moment's reflection that this should be the next author he recommended to his pupil. He hoped likewise so to end an interview in which he might otherwise be compelled to confess that he could render Margaret no assistance in the search after the something in the wood. And he was unwilling to say he could not understand her, for a power of universal sympathy was one of those mental gifts which Hugh was most anxious to believe he possessed. "'I will bring you another book to-night,' said he." which I think you will like, and which may perhaps help you find out what is in the wood. He said this, smiling, half in playful jest, and without any idea of the degree of likelihood, that there was, notwithstanding, in what he said. For certainly Wordsworth, the high priest of nature, though perhaps hardly the apostle of nature, was more likely than any other writer to contain something of the secret after which Margaret was searching. Whether she can find it there may seem questionable, Thank you, sir, said Margaret gratefully, but her whole countenance looked troubled as she turned towards her home. Doubtless, however, the trouble vanished before she reached it, for hers was not a nature to cherish disquietude. Hugh, too, went home rather thoughtful. In the evening he took a volume of Wordsworth and repaired, according to his wont, to David's cottage. It was Saturday, and he would stay to supper after they had given the usual time to their studies hugh setting margaret some exercises in english to write on her slate while he helped david with some of the elements of trigonometry and again going over these elements with her while david worked out a calculation after these were over and while janet was putting the supper on the table hugh pulled out his volume and without any preface read them the leech-gatherer all listened very intently janet included who delayed several of the operations that she might lose no word of the verses, David nodding assent every now and then and ejaculating Aye, aye, or hey man, or producing that strange muffled sound at once common and peculiar to Scotchmen, which cannot be expressed in letters by a nearer approach than HM slash HM uttered, it can be called uttering, with closed lips and open nasal passages. And Margaret, sitting motionless on her creepy, with upturned pale face, and eyes turned upon the lips of the reader. When he had ceased, all were silent for a moment, when Janet made some little sign of anxiety about her supper, which certainly had suffered by the delay. Then, without a word, David turned towards the table and gave thanks. Turning again to Hugh, who had risen to place his chair, he said, "'That mound be the work of a great poet, Mr. Sutherland.' "'It's Wordsworth," said Hugh." Ay, ay, that's Wordsworth, ay. Weel, I have just heard him made mention of, but I never read word of his afore, and he never repented of that same resolution I'se warrant, at he ends off with, Who does a-gone, Mr. Sutherland? Sutherland read, God, said I, be my help, and stay secure. I'll think of the leech-gatherer on the lonely moor, and added, It is said Wordsworth never knew what it was to be in want of money all his life. No doubt, no doubt, he trusted in him. It was for the sake of the minute notices of nature, and not for the religious lesson, which he now seemed to see for the first time that Hugh had read the poem. He could not help being greatly impressed by the confidence with which David received the statement he had just made on the authority of De Quincey in his unpleasant article about Wordsworth. David resumed. He mount have had a gleggie of his own, that master Wordsworth, to notice a thing that get. Well, he mount have liked leaving things, poor Malkin and all, just like were Robbie Burns for that, and see who they all can one another, thou poets. What says he about Burns? Ye need not tell me, master Sutherland, I mind it well enough. He says, him who walked in a glory and in joy, following his plough upon the mountain side, Poor Robbie, poor Robbie, but mine, he was a grandchild after all, and I trust in God he's won home by this, both Janet and Hugh, who had a very orthodox education, started mentally at this strange utterance, but they saw the eye of David solemnly fixed as if in deep contemplation and lighted in its blue depths with an ethereal brightness, and neither of them ventured to speak. Margaret seemed absorbed for the moment in gazing on her father's face, but not in the least as if it perplexed her like the fir would. To the seeing eye the same kind of expression would have been evident in both countenances, as if Margaret's reflected the meaning of her father's. Whether through the medium of intellectual sympathy or that of the heart only, it would have been hard to say. Meantime supper had been rather neglected, but its operations were now resumed more earnestly, and the conversation became lighter, till at last it ended in hearty laughter, and Hugh rose and took his leave. End, chapter 7